morning, congregation, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. You'll find this on page 1,300 in your Pew Edition Bibles. Romans chapter 8, I'll be reading the first 17 verses. And you'll note that our sermon text will be verses 12 through 17 this morning. Romans 8, beginning at verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And now our text for this morning. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is the word of the Lord, congregation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. May the Lord bless this to our hearts. May I ask you also this morning, please, To keep your Bibles open, we're going to follow the text very carefully. Uh, You'll find notes in the bulletin this morning if you care to take notes. But at the very least, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. We're going to follow the text from verses 12 through verse 17. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this morning from Romans chapter 8 asks one of the most basic, one of the most profound questions that we will ever wrestle with in our lives. And that is the question, who are you? That's the message for this morning. Who are you? 
I could give you my name. I could say, I'm Paul Ipema. But what does that really tell you? It may tell you my ethnic background. Oh, he's a good Frisian pastor. But maybe it doesn't tell you very much beyond that. It maybe tells you something of my family history, but does it really tell you who I am? If I were to ask the men of the congregation, who are you? I suspect that many of the men might answer by saying, well, I'm a pastor, I'm a farmer, I'm a painter, I'm a mechanic, I'm a teacher, I'm a businessman. We think of our identity on the basis of our vocation. We are what we do. But what happens when a man reaches a certain age and decides he's going to retire and he wrestles with matters of identity? Who am I now? For all these years, I've seen myself in terms of my vocation, but now when that vocation ceases to be, who am I really? I were to ask the women of the congregation, again, this is at the risk of overgeneralizing, but if I were to ask the women, who are you, I suspect that your answer would be along the lines of your relationships. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm a grandmother. And we see ourselves in terms of those relationships. But again, what happens, what happens when we reach that age where our children leave the house and we have this empty nest? And for all those years prior to that, we had, we had wrapped ourselves up in the nurture and care of these children. Have you seen mothers? Have you known mothers? Have you been one of those mothers that wrestles with, what is my identity now? For all these years, I have been the nurturer. I've been the caregiver. I've been the one who's taught my children. And now they're gone. They're out of the house. I know there are times where that becomes a very traumatic moment for mothers and wives. Or think of having your identity associated with an infamous event in your life. If you're a baseball fan, for example, you may remember a number of years ago a young man by the name of Steve Bartman. Steve Bartman was sitting at the Wrigley Field watching a Cubs game and a fly ball was hit up into the air and he was about to catch it. He was sitting along the left field line and he was going to catch the ball, not realizing that it was close enough to the baseline that the left fielder could have caught it. But he caught the ball. He interfered with the left fielder and may have cost the Cubs an opportunity to go to the World Series. You may not know this, but Steve Bartman was, was faced with all sorts of verbal abuse, not only at the baseball field, but also in the media. He had uh, people who issued death threats against him, so much so that he had to move to a different state, change his identity. And one day, perhaps, when he passes away, what will be remembered about this man? Can you imagine if the only thing people are going to remember about you is Steve Bartman, the guy who cost the Cubs the World Series in 2003. Can you imagine that? That's your claim to fame? But let's get back to our text. Our text this morning answers the question, who are you? Who are you? The Apostle Paul says that by means of the Spirit's ministry, and that's really the focus here of much of Romans 8, through the Spirit's ministry, we know who we are. We are, first of all, Paul says, debtors. Secondly, we are children of God, sons and daughters of God. And thirdly, if we're sons and daughters of God, that also means that we are heirs, heirs of the kingdom of heaven. 
So I'd like to follow that outline this morning from our text. You are a debtor. You are a child of God. You are an heir of the kingdom of heaven. As I said, much of chapter 8 deals with the life and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In fact, we're so familiar with the second half of Romans chapter 8 that we often neglect the first half. But really, the first half is the foundation. It is the basis upon which all those glorious promises of Romans 8 rest upon. We often read, and I often read at funeral services, the second half of Romans 8 concerning those glorious promises. And you sense also that with the glorious promises, the awareness that we still live in the middle of that tension between glory and groaning. That's how someone once described Romans 8. It is that tension between glory, the glory of what we anticipated, all of its fullness of our salvation, but there's also groaning. The whole creation groans. We groan. We long. We desire to see the brokenness of this world healed. The pain eliminated. Death no more. How is that possible? It's possible because of what the Holy Spirit has done. The Holy Spirit, the gift of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit's ministry is to, to draw attention to the glory of the Father and the Son. Maybe you've heard the expression that some pastors or some theologians use in describing the Holy Spirit. He, he is described as being the shy member of the Trinity. But I think a more accurate way of describing the Holy Spirit in terms of the nature of his ministry is he is the deferential member of the Trinity. To be deferential means you draw attention away from yourself and you place that attention upon others. So the Holy Spirit draws attention to the glorious work of God in designing our creation and planning it from eternity past and bringing it to its fulfillment The Holy Spirit draws our attention to the work of the Son in securing our salvation. John Calvin had this beautiful description of how the Holy Spirit functions in our salvation. He said it's like a well with water at the bottom. You Think of yourself, picture in your mind, walking through a desert area. Your, Your throat is parched. Your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth. You would do anything for just a drop of water. And lo and behold, you see a well. And you look down into that well and you see water. Clear water. Cold water. Drinkable water. But that water will do you no good unless you have some means of drawing that water up and putting it to your mouth. Calvin said that's how the Holy Spirit functions. The Holy Spirit takes what Jesus Christ has secured through His suffering, His death, His resurrection and ascension, and He applies it to us in his powerful and mysterious way, as Jesus had said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wills, meaning the Holy Spirit is sovereign in that work. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit enables us to do that which we could not do ourselves. You notice in the earlier part of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says that our sinful human nature not only rebels against God's will, it cannot do God's will. It is unable to do God's will apart from the Spirit's work. Now it's in light of that that Paul begins with 
So then, or here in the New King James, I'm using my notes from the ESV, but the New King James has the word therefore. And whenever you read therefore in the Bible, you always ask yourself, what is it therefore? It points us back to the preceding verses. Therefore, in light of the Holy Spirit's work and ministry and making us alive in Jesus Christ, we are debtors. Not in the sense that we can somehow pay back God for his work of salvation. We can never do that. We all know that. You and I will never be able to pay back the debt we owe. But it means we are under obligation to the Holy Spirit. But he puts it this way. We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Now, when he talks about flesh, that's shorthand for what? It's shorthand for sinful nature. He's not talking about the stuff that covers our bones and contains our blood and other things. He's talking about the sinful nature. We are not debtors. We are not under obligation to that old sinful nature. We were enslaved to that nature before the ministry of the Holy Spirit, says Paul. So we don't live anymore according to that sinful nature, to live according to it. His words are sobering. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. What do you think the Apostle means by that statement? All of us, sooner or later, unless the Lord should return in our lifetimes, all of us, sooner or later, will die. So what does he mean when he says, if you live according to the sinful nature, if you live according to that enslavement, you will die? I think about that in light of my own recent history with my family. My, uh, my mother passed away this summer after uh, a bout with cancer over several months this year. What does that mean for her, this verse? What does that mean for our family? Believers die. But here, in this context, the Apostle Paul uses death not in terms of the physical death that we all must undergo, but he's talking here about eternal death. The wages of sin is death in its ultimate and final meaning. It's a warning that if we live our lives enslaved to that sinful nature, what awaits us is damnation. There's no other way to put that. And we must put that as boldly and as soberly as possible. You cannot keep living that way, says Paul, and expect to escape the judgment, the just judgment of God. But notice, but if by the Spirit, that is, by the power of the Spirit, You put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. The deeds of the body simply means our our sinful nature often expresses itself by what we do with our bodies. But if by the Spirit we put to death, I want you to notice carefully that wording, put to death. It reminds me of the language of the Catechism in Lord's Day 33. What does conversion consist of? And the first part you remember, boys and girls, you remember this from catechism class, I'm sure, when you had to memorize this question and answer. I hope, I hope. Two things. There must be, first of all, 
the dying away to sin. The dying away to sin. The technical term that theologians use is mortification. Put to death. What does that mean, practically speaking? It means to recognize it, to be sure, but certainly it means much more than recognizing and nodding your head saying, yeah, I know that's sinful, or boy, I really hate that sin, especially when I see it in other people. Jesus put it this way. You must take radical measures in your fight against sin so that if your right hand causes you to sin, you lop it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Over the years, I've asked students in catechism class, what do you think Jesus meant by that? Did he literally mean cut off your hand, pluck out your eye? I think at the very least, what Jesus was saying there was, you and I must be prepared to be ruthless in the fight against our sin. Ruthless. That came home to me very clearly over the last year and a half or so as I was dealing with my own medical issues, as some of you know. A little over two years ago, I was struggling with a diabetic wound in the bottom of my foot. Literally, it was like having a hole in the bottom of my foot. Went to the podiatrist, and when the podiatrist couldn't do anything to close up the wound, I went to the wound clinic, or he sent me to the wound clinic. And I got a nice little lecture from the nurse practitioner manager there saying, young man, if you don't learn to control your diabetes, we're going to keep taking piece after piece from your foot until finally we take your whole leg off. Well, that was very sobering. And with all the treatment they gave me, it wasn't closing. So finally the doctor said, we have to do surgery. We have to remove an infected bone in your foot. And hopefully by doing that we can suture the wound and hopefully by then it will bring about healing. Well, wouldn't you know it, just around that time the pandemic started and the governor of Indiana in his wisdom said all elective surgery must be postponed until further notice. So we wait. And so week after week, sometimes once a week, sometimes twice a week, we could go to the wound clinic. My wife takes care of me at home. I'm very limited in what I, can't, what I can do. I can't teach. I can't drive. But we're waiting for surgery. Well, Shortly before, finally, the the ban was lifted and I was going to have surgery in May of 2020. Week before that, I went to the wound clinic. They took off the, the gauze from my foot and my middle toe on my right foot, which had formerly been a little red, inflamed, was now purple as a plum. The doctor looked at it and said, you're going to be admitted right now to the hospital. Okay. Not what I was expecting to hear from the doctor, but so I was admitted. The next day, the infectious disease doctor comes and sees me, a a nice Indian woman who took one look at my foot and she gasped audibly. I said, what's the matter? She says, don't you see the problem? I said, well, what is it? She says, you have gangrene on your foot, on your toe. And she took out her, her phone and took a picture of it and showed me, look, see, look, it's gangrene. And I said, so what do we got to do? She says, we got to cut it off. We got to cut it off. Now, I could have responded to that situation by saying, first of all, I don't see any gangrene. I don't see anything. I've known a number of parishioners, particularly older men, who have the attitude that if you don't go to the doctor, you're not sick. 
Because whenever you go to the doctor, he'll tell you something's wrong and it has to be remedied. But if you don't go to the doctor, you must be well. Ignorance is bliss. I could have done that. It wouldn't have turned out very well, would it? Or I could have said, you know, I'm rather fond of that toe. I've had it for a long time. I don't want to part with it. Can't we just keep that toe? As hideous as it looks, can't we just keep it? No, we had to have surgery. It had to be cut off. It had to be cut off. And when I asked the doctor, well, can't we save it somehow? The doctor says, if we don't cut it off, you're going to die. You're going to die. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. If you do not wage war against the sin in your life, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will die. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You must make war against sin. Now, here's the real question we have to wrestle with. Congregation, do you hate your own sins more than the sins of other people? Do you hate your own sins more than you hate the sins of other people? Now, if we think about that for a little bit, that can be very convicting because we're quite good at identifying the sins of other people. Oh, I can't believe what so-and-so just said. I can't believe what they did. Oh, that person is so arrogant, so haughty. That person is such a gossip. Let me tell you about him. That sort of thing. Do you hate your own sins more than you hate the sins of others? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Who am I? I am a debtor. I have an obligation to the Spirit not to live according to the enslavement of the sinful nature, but to live in the power of the newness of life. And part of that means that I will wage war against sin. The Spirit is the one who enables me to do that and assures me, ultimately, that the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. Secondly, who are we? Who are you? We are children of God through adoption. Notice verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, again, consider carefully how the Apostle Paul words this. To be led by the Spirit here is not referring in this context to Paul talking about how we make decisions about where should I live, whom should I marry, how am I going to deal with my money, how am I going to spend it, how am I going to interact with other people. That No, he's talking here about being led is the equivalent of doing battle against sin. Those who wage war against sin in their hearts and their lives are the ones who can be identified as children of God, sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. There's a contrast going on here in verse 15. Slavery versus sonship. How does a slave act in contrast to a son? The slave acts in fear. He's always looking over his shoulder. He's always wondering, 
Is the master going to be pleased with my work? Am I going to do enough to satisfy the master? Will he beat me? Will he whip me? Will he sell me? Will he disown me? There's never this sense of intimacy. Never the assurance of love and devotion. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. It's the imagery of the prodigal son. The prodigal son who says as he's contemplating the food in the pig trough, Boy, my father, my father would give me food to eat. My father has a home for me. He, he may not recognize me anymore as his son, but I know at least he won't throw me out. I won't have to eat with the pigs. We are children of God. I don't know if you're familiar with the wonderful book by J.A. Packer entitled Knowing God. It's a classic, and I hope if you haven't read it, you will read it sometime. But my favorite chapter in that book is a chapter entitled Sons of God. And in it he discusses the often neglected and often underappreciated doctrine of adoption. In fact, in our confessional documents, very little is said about our adoption. Very little. In the Presbyterian tradition, the Westminster Standards, have an article devoted to the doctrine of adoption. But Packer begins that chapter in his book by talking about or asking the question, what is the, the richest definition of a Christian? How would you define a Christian? And I suspect that many of us would be tempted to go the route of, well, the Christian is someone who who knows or confesses or believes in doctrines A, B, C, and following. We tend to associate with something very cerebral, very mental. But I think Packer was correct when he said the richest definition of a child of God, of, of a Christian, is someone who knows God as his father. Who knows God as her father. That is, he said, the richest definition. I think he's absolutely right. That God is not some distant, remote deity just simply pushing buttons and pulling levers, controlling all the strings as it were, but He is my Father. So that when Jesus taught us to pray, we begin by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven. And as the Catechism says, that teaches us That teaches us to approach God with a a sense of intimacy, of love and devotion. Wicked fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more our wise and powerful Father in heaven? You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, so that you don't live in that constant fear. That constant questioning, am I, am I a child of God? Have I done enough to satisfy the Father? He says if we are adopted, <clears throat> we then cry out, Abba, Father. He uses that Aramaic word, Abba. Maybe you've studied in a Bible study or on your own personal devotions Sometimes that word Abba, or that title Abba, is simply translated as Daddy. But the emphasis here is not upon informality. It's upon intimacy. To call him Abba Father really means, and really should be translated, Dearest Father. 
something radical about the Christian faith in that regard. The world's religions have many, many different titles for their deities. But they don't have the title of Father. Jesus taught us to look to the Creator and Redeemer of our lives. Not as your boss, not as a despot, not simply as King and Lord, but as your Father. And that's why we cry out, Dearest Father. But I guess the real question I want to pose to you this morning, I want to, I want to challenge you to think about this morning is, is that how you relate to your Heavenly Father? When you pray, when you make plans for the day, for the week, for the month, for years to come, do you think of God as your dearest Father? When you find yourself in trouble, when you're sick, when you're weak, when you struggle with depression, with loneliness, with a sense of alienation, do you cry out to Him, Abba, Father? Or is the God of Scripture remote, distant, impersonal, cold, indifferent, uncaring in terms of your day-to-day living? I want you to think about that. Because, again, one of the great gifts of the Holy Spirit, one of the blessings of the New Covenant is that the Holy Spirit confirms in our hearts that God is our Father. Notice verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I have to tell you, that's what intrigued me and led me to write this sermon in the first place. I preached this sermon some time ago in connection with Pentecost Sunday. And I've always been intrigued by that statement that the Holy Spirit's ministry, among the many other things the Holy Spirit does, I mean, the Holy Spirit, by the way, gives life to the creation. So when I drive into Iowa, I see the beautiful corn crops, I see the beautiful bean fields, and it is beautiful to see it. You know that's there, not just because of the hard work of the farmers here. It's green, it's alive, it's productive because the Holy Spirit gives life to it. You watch the birds feeding on your bird feeder. That's evidence of the Spirit's work. We think of our own (coughs) regeneration and conversion, the Spirit's work. But I wonder how often we thought about the Holy Spirit confirming, witnessing to our spirit that we are children of God. I don't know if you've read or if you're familiar with the great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, He has a long series of volumes of sermons he preached through Romans. I don't know that any pastor today would be brave enough to follow his example. But he spends a considerable amount of time in in his sermons on Romans 8 dealing with the whole issue of the Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. And he says we must appreciate the wonder of it. That there's something profound about that witness. So that it's not mere acknowledgement, mere assent to these things. Yes, I know that's true. I believe it, etc., etc. 
but it is to be gripped. It is to be overwhelmed. It is to be filled with awe and wonder that God is my Father for Jesus' sake. I ask you, dear friends, have you had that experience where you are simply awestruck by God as your Father? Has the Spirit ministered in your heart that way? If the Spirit has not ministered in your heart to that extent, I I ask, I plead with you to pray for the Spirit to do that, to assure you that you are one of God's children. So we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. We are debtors to the Spirit's ministry. And finally, thirdly, we are heirs. Again, notice from our text, if you have your Bibles open, and if children, then heirs. Now, again, a word of explanation about Paul's language here. The word if is not meant to raise doubts. It's not to say, well, I'm not sure you are children, but if. No, he's thinking more in terms of the logical progression of the thought here. We know that if we're children, then this must be true as well. If we are children of God, then we are also heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Meaning that whatever we receive by way of inheritance is because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But let's talk a little bit about that word heir and the idea of inheritance. What does Paul mean by inheritance? Huge mounds of gold? You know, Jesus talked often about money in his ministry. He warns us not to lay up treasures upon the earth, but rather lay up treasures in heaven. He says, empty your pockets, get rid of all that you have, and you will have treasures stored up for you in heaven. Inheritance here, I think, is shorthand, again, for the Apostle Paul in summarizing all the blessings of salvation. All the blessings. Justification, sanctification, Glorification, if you want to use those theological terms. Or to put it differently, to be declared righteous by grace through faith. To be made into the image of Jesus Christ. And to have your life perfected through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All these things are encompassed in the word inheritance. The new heavens and the new earth. The home of righteousness. All these things are ours Because God is our Father. It reminds me of what Scripture says time and time again about where our priorities should be and how we have perspective on this life and our possessions, our relationship to our possessions. You remember, for example, in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is an epistle addressed to people, initially at least, the the first recipients of that letter or that sermon were people who were facing the onset of persecution. Some of the members of that small church had been put in prison. Others had their possessions confiscated. And in chapter 10, the pastor reminds them of the earlier days of their Christian life, their Christian fellowship. He says, remember when you joyfully surrendered, when you joyfully gave up or allowed your possessions to be plundered, I wonder if we would do that. 
someone pulled in the parking lot and began towing away our vehicles, would you rejoice at that? Would you say, that's fine, go ahead. If you need it, take it. But the pastor says you rejoiced because you knew that you had a better, that is, a heavenly possession, a heavenly inheritance. That's the perspective that you and I have in the Christian life because of the Spirit's ministry. If we are children of God, then we are heirs. So the goal of life is not to accumulate for ourselves great kingdoms, great possessions. It's not to follow the path of least resistance in life so that we have an easy, comfortable life. We live not for ourselves, says the Apostle Paul. We live for Him who saved us. We live for the kingdom of heaven. We seek first the kingdom of heaven. But that's the promise. So let them take what they want. Let them harm us if they want. Let them even kill us if they want. They cannot take what is most precious. And that is my inheritance. Secure, Peter says in his epistle, secure and undefiled, reserved for us in heaven. That's easy for us to say. It's easy for this preacher to say in the relative comfort and ease and safety of Pella, Iowa or Chicago, Illinois. Well, maybe not Chicago, Illinois. Maybe the south suburbs. But think about Christians who throughout the ages have suffered greatly and the thing that they would cling to when everything was stripped away was their inheritance in Jesus Christ. There's a great deal of discussion among the commentators and others about what the Apostle Paul means when he uses the expression, we are heirs of God. Heirs in relationship to God? It's probably the most common explanation for what that phrase means. But I find intriguing, I find interesting I don't know that I'm entirely convinced of it, but I, I find it interesting to contemplate the possibility, at least, based on other biblical texts, that Paul may actually be suggesting that God himself is our inheritance. Why do I say that? You remember when the Israelites received their allotment of land in the promised land of Canaan, every tribe received a plot of land, except the tribe of Levi. And do you remember what the Lord said about the tribe of Levi? What was their inheritance? God was their inheritance. God was their portion. I think about the text that my mother chose for her funeral service. Unbeknownst to me, her psalm was my favorite psalm, Psalm 73. And the verse she chose to have preached at her funeral service last month was, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the portion of my heart. If we are children, we are heirs. Does that concept, does that idea thrill you? 
Does it grant you comfort and encouragement? Does it provide perspective? Does it give you a sense of meaning and direction in your life? Again, take whatever you want. You cannot take what is most precious. But along with that great promise comes a sobering warning that we are heirs, provided, provided, the ESV says, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Here again is that theme throughout chapter 8, glory in tension with groaning. Wasn't it really this that was the crux of the problem for the disciples of Jesus Christ? When Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, when he talked about reigning, about subduing the strong man, when he talked about reigning over all things, the disciples were salivating. Can I, can I be at your, your left hand and your right hand? Jesus, who will have the greatest position of power when you enter into your kingdom? Even one of their mothers, two of their mothers, mother, comes and says, the mother of James and John, can my boys have places of honor in your kingdom? And Jesus says, lady, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm paraphrasing. You have no idea what you're talking about. Can you undergo, can they undergo what I have to undergo? Oh, yes, they say. But when Jesus first began to reveal more clearly the path that his ministry would take by means of the cross and then glory. Do you remember what the response was? Peter said, it can't be, Lord. In fact, the text says that he rebuked Jesus. Can you imagine the gall of Peter rebuking Jesus, saying, Jesus, you've got it all wrong. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of, of God, but you have in mind the things of man. And it was only until after the resurrection that the disciples began to understand that the path of glory led through the cross. And so it is for us as well today. The path of glory leads through the cross. No cross, no crown. No groaning, no glory. So who are you? Who are you, congregation? Certainly you are more than a name or a number. Certainly you are more than your vocation, as important as that may be. Certainly you are more than your relationships with other human beings. You are a debtor. Not to the sinful nature, but to the Spirit of God who redeemed you, who gives you life. You are a child of God. Do you... Do you grasp this morning? Do you celebrate? Do you rejoice in what that means for you to have God as your Father? And if you are a child of God, you are also an heir. And a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You will receive the crown. But only first through the cross. May God bless this word to your hearts. May He encourage you. And may He assure you of your identity given to you by the Spirit's ministry. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We do thank you for the ministry of your Spirit among us and within us. Where would we be, Father, without your Spirit's ministry? We would still be enslaved to our sinful nature, but we have been liberated. Teach us then to live our lives not for ourselves, but for him who redeemed us. Confirm to us, dear Father, that you are the Father who loves us for Jesus' sake. And assure us also that what awaits us, what we possess now in part, but will possess fully when Christ returns, is an eternal weight of glory. So, Father, hear us and bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.